Welcome to Logicast episode 6, the Logicast podcast by Logicata, where we take a deep dive into the previous week's AWS news. I'm Carl Robinson, co-founder and CEO of Logicata, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague John. How are you doing this week, John? Oh, you know, same old, same old. Plodding along, you know me. Good, good. That's what we like to hear. So uh, if you're new to the podcast, uh, every week we take a selection of articles from our weekly AWS News Roundup newsletter, uh, which gets sent out every Friday afternoon. Uh, It's a selection of personally curated AWS News articles. um, And uh, in the podcast, we select a few of those and take a little bit of a deeper dive. So this week, the first of those articles... Um, is uh, an EC2 enhancement um, from our friend Renato Lozio at InfoQ. Um, This article is entitled, uh, Amazon EC2 introduces replace root volume to patch guest operating system and applications. So uh, I think I kind of understand this one, John, but uh, talk us through it. In in true InfoQ fashion, because whilst, you know, L Reg does well out of us, so do InfoQ on this podcast, they've given you the entire article in the title. It's great. <laughs> it, it's very much what it says on the tin. Um, up until fairly recently, basically until this announcement, if you wanted to patch an EC2 or whatever, you had kind of two ways of doing that. And I'm, I realise I'm swearing at the British audience there. You have two ways of doing that. You could either log onto the box and you know, do a yum update. I know I've done that for some of our customers recently with the SSL vulnerability. Um, and there's ways of kind of automating that so you don't have to log on to the box. You can use um, as SSM Systems Manager and that will kind of run actions and things for you. You could do it with Chef or Ansible or, or whatever. And that's one way. And the other way is if you have an AMI bakery, an AMI factory, I'm going to say it both ways to annoy everyone because that way I'm definitely wrong for both of them. Um, and you have auto-scaling groups, you terminate the instance, bring new ones up, you do blue-green deployments, all that kind of good stuff, right? But in either case, you are doing something active. I mean, you're doing something active anyway, but you are doing um, something potentially destructive to the instance. You're either having to back the instance up before you go and apply your updates or you're bringing on a new instance, you know. Those, those are things and those are kind of ways of doing things. What this is doing is this is allowing you to swap out the root instance of the EC2 without terminating it because you didn't used to be able to do that. It does require a, a quick reboot, but that's um, a console reboot rather than a stop and a start. So it, it, it goes down, but only for kind of a couple of seconds. Um, and it's quite cool, really. What they are saying is there's sort of two... Uh, major uses for this is number one is a distributed immutable ephemeral paradigm for cloud security try saying that with a mouthful of bread die it's a lovely <laughs> acronym isn't it i know it's, it's brilliant. absolutely not what you want your server to do no. when you're patching it so uh yeah perhaps they could have chosen re- reordered the letters or something because uh yeah i don't think i want to use something with the acronym die, die. Uh, when i'm patching the server but yeah uh, anyway but yeah um, the idea being that you replace the root volume by reverting it to its original state. Yeah. So there's been a problem with this box. Bang. Straight back to how it was when it came up without having to kill the box and bring it all back up again and all that jazz, which gives you that sort of um, immutable infrastructure without having to have all the auto scaling groups and bits and pieces in place. It, it gives a uh, lower cost of entry, if you like. 
and then the other option of course is is the other way around is that your your incident can very much become a bit of a pet in the same way that your development laptop is a pet it your server can become sort of a pet rather than cattle which uh one of my favorite economists Corey quinn has has sort of said is yes people are going to get annoyed by it but the idea is you can patch the root instant uh, the root volume and flip it into place great wonderful and you just sort of keep doing that across the board which is which is great because as he quite rightly says your development instance you want to keep it patched but it is very much a pet it's not you know production of cattle in your dev instances tend to be a bit more curated than that i have to admit i got very excited when i, I saw the title of this article um, but then uh, my excitement was quashed in the first paragraph that uh, you still need to reboot the the instance i thought perhaps this was a a way to reboot instances without patching them do you think do you think we'll ever see that um potentially i don't think so though because the root instance is where the operating system is sitting right and if you I don't know, you've, you've probably done this many, many moons ago in data center land. If you yank the drive that the OS is sitting on, all hell breaks loose. Even if it is running in RAM, all hell breaks loose. So probably not. Yeah. Well, never mind. Uh, still, uh, is, do you think it's something you would use yourself? Um, I'm, well, if appropriate. I've always been a fan of the immutable infrastructure of the scaling groups of the kill the instance, bring a new one on cattle, not pets, all that jazz. I bought into that rhetoric hard. So I, I kind of live in that sort of world where I have to run servers and I prefer to not run servers at all. As, as you know, I'm our resident um, expert. I don't like using the term, but I'm our resident boffin on uh, serverless programming and serverless computing. So I prefer that. But I can see uses for this. Yeah. My dad always used to say that an expert, uh, an ex is a has been, and a spurt is a drip under pressure. So uh, if you want to be our resident expert, John, uh, be my guest. I just prefer that term to thought leader because that sounds so Orwellian. <laughs> How about guru? Be our resident serverless guru. Uh, oh, I should have to go to the Himalayas and find myself then. <laughs> you could do some serverless meditating. <laughs> Shall we meditate on the next so, article? Yeah, let's meditate a segue uh, smoothly on, as always, to the next article. Um, so uh, this one's uh, on uh, on Tech Target, and uh, it's about uh, it's a comparison basically between AWS Global Accelerator and Amazon CloudFront, which are two services uh, that you can use uh, in AWS if you've got a globally distributed audience to speed up the performance of your, your applications. Um, so I'm quite familiar with CloudFront. I'm less familiar with, with AWS Global Accelerator. So talk us through it, John. What, what are the differences and when might you use one rather than the other? Well, yeah, I'm not as familiar with Global Accelerator either. So if I mix it up with S3 Transfer Accelerator, you shall have to forgive me because that's the one I've used quite a bit. <laughs> Uh, but as I understand it, the logic behind those two things is the same. So as as you well know, CloudFront is, it's a CDN. Yeah, very meat and potatoes. You have local web servers, caching content, served from your local server. Brilliant. Global Accelerator is a way of increasing transfer speed, accelerating your transfer speeds between kind of those edge locations and your home region, if you like, for lack of a better term, from where your infrastructure actually is. It's rather than running out of, say, the island endpoint, going over the, over the various bits and pieces and ending up sort of across the Atlantic and in San Francisco um, over the public internet, which is slow, it's going over the AWS backbone 
and then ending up coming out of the edge location in San Francisco, which is obviously much faster because it's big, thick lease lines, not not got quite so much competing traffic, kind of all that good stuff. But there's no caching because it's kind of on the other end. I believe the same tech that underpins Global Accelerator, don't quote me on this, um, underpins the transfers between CloudFront Edge nodes because it would make sense. It's just using all the same backbone kit and slinging data around real fast. Um, it just depends on whether it gets cached on the end or not, as I understand it. Mm. So, I, mean, um, I uh, have to confess that I never knew the full form of the acronym UDP before today. Uh, <laughs> user Datagram Protocol. It's jumped off the page at me as something. Uh, first of all, I was reading the article. I thought, what on earth is that? And then, of course, they've got the uh, the TLA right behind it. Ah, it's, it's that. <laughs> I mean, I'd tell you um, a UDP joke, but I don't care if you get it. Oh, but um, Tish. <laughs> so, what what are the sort of different use cases between CloudFront and, and Global Accelerator? What kind of, I mean, obviously CloudFront's primarily websites, uh, web-based applications. What what sort of things might you use Global Accelerator for? I mean, you can use it for the same. You can, but it's much more obvious for things like IoT, streaming data. Uh, they they talk about gaming applications and that sort of thing. Um, so, like I say, it's the sort of thing where you can't easily either cache or have a multi-region setup. Um, RDS being a good example, right? It's very hard to have a multi-region uh, RDS database where you've got like, multi-master setups. You can do it with Dynamo with global tables, and that's really cool. Um, but, you know, RDS is the classic example, right? It, it lives in a region. It could be multi-AZ, but it lives in a region. And if you need to send things back to your back end very quickly because it's your RDS is in Ireland and your customers are in Australia and you didn't think to put it in a sensible region or or you moved into Australia or whatever, that's kind of where you'd want to be seeing global accelerators. You turn that on and it will do its absolute damnedest to make sure that your traffic to your users and from your users is going as quickly as possible. But yeah, the the big ones, the obvious ones are things like streaming data. Not cheaper. So is, is global accelerator more kind of machine to machine, whereas CloudFront is machine to, to end user? Yeah, that's how I see it. Reasonable summation. Yeah, cool, cool. Okay, um, let's move on then from uh, Global Accelerator and CloudFront to our next article, um, which um, is talking about the new uh, AWS Resource Explorer, uh, which helps you to quickly find resources in your AWS account. This one's an AWS blog post by Danilo Poccia. Um, and uh, I thought it was quite interesting, actually, because it can uh, be very difficult to... Uh, you know, if if you're operating um, in multiple regions uh, with lots of different infrastructure, it can be very difficult um, from the AWS console to figure out um, what you've got and where it is. So how is this going to help? Well, it does exactly what the article says. It, it helps you quickly find resources in your AWS account. As you say, until this tool, there's a few sort of third-party options and things out there that help with that. But until this tool... It was incredibly difficult when you've been brought onto an existing environment, be that because you're a new DevOps engineer or you're a new DevOps hire into a company, or as we're doing right now, if you're onboarding customers into an MSP, to kind of really get under the covers, under the skin, and discover what's running where and how much and all the costs and all that jazz. Some of the services are global, IAM S3, so you can kind of see that. Um, and there's some tools out there 
again that we use uh, that do things like um, graphing your your resources but they tend to kind of be restricted to a region um, and if the customer tells you what regions they're in great um, if it's document if you're a new employee and it's documented great but it isn't always not everyone always knows you might end up accidentally deploying something that runs globally but you deployed I don't know the cloud formation stack in a random region because you were just in the wrong place in the console it's easy done I've done it um, it ends up being very hard to kind of find everything and with these graphing tools they kind of stay in one region so you sort of have to click through and try in all 35 regions or whatever um, and it gets quite tricky so this is quite good because yeah I want to know everything that's in my account bang there you are wonderful um, it will aggregate it into a region which is sort of what you expect it to do because you don't want to be clicking through every region saying what's here what's here what's here you want to just go into one place go into a bucket or whatever and go pop there we go wonderful and like like I say there are there have been other tools that do this sort of thing um, cloud viz being the one that I can think of that we use for graphing I've come across a, a CLI tool called cloud nuke which is used for killing off every resource in an account but it will list them first but that seems a bit kind of dangerous if you're just trying to explore the account to uh, you know run something oh I forgot the dry run flag damn bye bye account you know that kind of thing so this is quite good um, it's I'm surprised it took this long I really am but there we are we got there in the end yeah, I think one of the things uh, we use a tool called Cloud Checker as a part of our managed service delivery, and they have a nice inventory section. You can go in and just see, you know, it tells you uh, sort of across all the regions you've got this many EC2 instances and this many containers and this many load balancers and stuff like that. It's quite quite a nice way to visualize it. Um, is is this just producing a, a, a list, a filterable list, I guess, or how you know how is it from a kind of a user interface perspective? Uh, so they've got a console for it it's not like spitting out csv or anything like that i'm sure you can export it but you've got a console it's a filterable console and then you can click through to all of the resources that it's found and it kind of tells you where they are and what type it is and the name of it and and that sort of thing and then you can kind of filter that down with with tags as you sort of expect but yeah as you say there are other tools that have been doing this but i'm surprised it took aws this long to come come up with something must have had some uh, large amounts of customer feedback around it, I guess. Uh, large amounts of customer feedback or amounts of large customer feedback? Either, either or. <laughs> either, either. Neither, neither. Um, so so is, it, is it on by default? or do you, do you, I think I read somewhere in the article that you need to turn it on um, yeah. to sort of go away and discover things. Yeah, no, you turn it on and what does it say? I think it takes up to 36 hours or something. Something yeah. like that. Yeah, there we go. With the quick setup option, after the indexes have been created, it can take up to 36 hours to index all supported regions. And is it on an account-by-account account basis? So if you're in an organization structure, you'd need to run it in each account? or is I believe kind of so. View? No, I think it's account-by-account. I mean, that sort of makes sense, right? Because particularly in an org structure, people that have access to one account don't necessarily have access to another, um, and but they might have access to the payer account. Because okay, the obvious thing in the payer account, that's the master account, that's the billing data. I don't want my accountant knowing where what all my servers are because they're not going to know what to do with them. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Good, uh, good point. 
All right, let's move on to the the uh, the fourth article for this week, um, which is uh, another uh, new service, the Amazon EventBridge Scheduler. Um, so again, uh, I know a little bit about EventBridge, but as our resident uh, serverless guru, um, I'm sure you know a lot more about it. So uh, um, tell us about the EventBridge Scheduler. Oh no, I'm tangenting now. Every time you say guru, I want to light some incense. <laughs> <laughs> Um. <laughs> no, I should never mock meditation because it's very good, and I've never seen anyone meditate by going home, apart from that chap that talks about resistance. Uh, oh dear, that, that that was a joke, wasn't it? I think that was a joke. I'm, I'm, I should be laughing now. I should be laughing, but uh... <laughs> you can laugh at me instead of with me. It's fine. <laughs> I'll let you decide which one it is. <laughs> no, I've I've got electric uh, electricity on on the brain because as you as um, viewers and listeners from last time will remember, I had solar panels put in last week and then well week before now, and I had a smart meter put in a few days ago now. So I've got electric on the brain. Hence uh, the electricity puns tripping off the tongue. <laughs> tripping. There's another electricity pun <laughs> for you. That was. <laughs> this isn't scripted. I can assure you. <laughs> no, if it was, it'd be much funnier. <laughs> <laughs> so tell tell us about the uh amazon event bridge well first of all tell us a bit about event bridge um and then tell us what the uh, new capability is uh with the uh, with the, the scheduler okay event bridge is an interesting thing almost everything publishes um metric data and and, and api calls and stuff to event bridge you could call it an event bus if you like because that's sort of what it is um, but it's just there on by default for free and you can use it for event driven schedules event driven architectures i've done it a little bit um the example that i can come up with is in like a video on demand platform where your video has been transcoded by the elastic transcoder or elemental media convert it's called now um but there's no direct way to trigger something off of the back of that to, to go off and tell your database that it's then available um but you can subscribe to event bridge to say when i get a thing saying completed fire off this lambda great that's what event bridge is largely used for you can also use it for a few other things but that's kind of the obvious one yeah you can have custom um, buses as well in EventBridge if you want. So you can publish things to your own ones. But the default one is, is just kind of on and listening and kind of most things published to it. Um, you know, most things that aren't API calls published to it. The EventBridge scheduler. Scheduler? Scheduler? Every time I say scheduler, I just think shed. <laughs> the shed scheduler. <laughs> <laughs> A schedule, a schedule is just a fight in a shed, isn't it? I think I'm a schedule man rather than a schedule man. I don't know actually. Now it's one of those things that uh, you should know, which is your default. But uh, now that you've brought it up, I'm thinking about it, I don't know what I default to: schedule or schedule. I think I think I schedule ultimate. is British. Schedule is British, and schedule yeah. is American. I think. Right. So, well, as this is an AWS service, let's go with scheduler. <laughs> <laughs> Eventbridge thingy. Um, Right, so this is a new thing, obviously. This is a new way of doing time-based invocations of resources after an event has fired. Now, that's a bit of a mouthful, so let's break that down a little bit. The diagram that you come up with right at the top, um, I wonder if Marcia did this one. Sorry, you didn't say it was by Marcia Vishalba, did you? 
She's been on a, a rival Cloud podcast in the past. I did not, no. Mm. Um, but I think this diagram is using... Actually, I'm not sure these are the correct AWS icons. <laughs> I, I don't think they're uh, legacy ones. I just think they're they're not official ones. So uh, that really you know bothers how, you, how doesn't much it? Of a stickler I am for that. You know, there is an icon toolkit that you can download from the AWS website, which has all the latest icons in it. And I don't think these ones are uh, are correct. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, you know, uh, let's, let's yeah, move on. Right, this diagram. So it is actually pretty good so the, the the example here is a user cancels a subscription of a service but obviously for most subscriptions subscription services when you cancel a subscription it's not kind of cutting you off immediately it's just saying do not rebuild me at my next pay period um, and you have access to the service until the end of the current pay period right because you pay in advance so that that sort of makes sense that has been quite tricky to do up until something like this because you've got um, you, you basically you have to come up with a custom way of doing things. You have to have some sort of the obvious solution in my head would be uh, the the cancel API puts a record in a Dynamo table and then once a day that table is read by something else to work out who should be kicked off the platform and all that sort of thing. And that's it works, but it's a bit kludgy. Um, you can kind of do it with step functions, but the longest wait time I think a step function can have is 24 hours. So that's quite limiting there. So if you have a daily payment system, then that's okay, but it's it's not amazing. This is quite good though, because you put a schedule in the EventBridge scheduler from your Lambda function in the same way that you would put a record in a Dynamo table, but then EventBridge is just firing the thing off. You're not having to have like a cron job or whatever to read said table to then go and do it. Um, it's not supported on everything, but it is supported on quote, over 200 services with more than 6,000 APIs. So that's basically anything you'd want it to be on, more or less. Most things. It, most things, yeah. I don't know how many AWS services there are, but it's more than 200. But it's not many more than 200, though, is it? I don't think. Somewhere between two and 300, perhaps. Something like that. But it's highly unlikely that you're going to want to schedule, I don't know, a deep racer run, you know, from something like this. So it's probably everything that needs it has got it. So that's great. Encrypted at, uh, at rest by default, which is what we like to see. Uh, nice, nice high uh, quotas as well, which is good. Supports cron, supports rates, which is wonderful. Um, yeah, it's. I can't complain. I have no complaints about this, which is very rare for me. Very good. And can I just point out that uh, when you were in full flow there, you definitely defaulted to schedule and scheduler. Uh, there was no k uh, in uh, okay. your description there. <laughs> Someone's going to have to have so a fight with me in to... my shed. Yeah. <laughs> let's move on to the final article of this week, um, which uh, I've just clicked on it, and there's a, a picture of me, because uh, this one uh, is on the Logicata blog, and uh, it was indeed written by me. So uh, you'd think I would know the contents of it, um, but uh, I'm going to test you on the contents of this particular <laughs> article, John, to make sure that you are actually reading my blog posts as well. Um, so uh, this this particular one uh, is is called AWS Best Practices for EdTech Companies. Um, we actually were out to lunch yesterday with one of our customers in the EdTech space, which was very pleasant, a uh, lovely seafood restaurant in central Brighton, but I digress. Um, so uh, the article is about uh, best practices for setting up your AWS environment 
if you are an edtech company, because edtech companies have a very specific set of requirements around uh, the seasonality of their user base and uh, the performance, etc. So obviously they're very busy during term time and not very busy during uh, holiday times and half terms and so on and so forth. So uh, very uh, peak, peaky, uh, predictable uh, peaks and troughs of, of workflow um, into their environments. Um, but, uh, you know, all of the recommendations in this article could equally be applied to any business that also has those kind of peaks and troughs of workloads. But, uh, you know, EdTechs is a, a, a very good example um, where, uh, you know, they, they have that predictable workload. Um, so, you know, we've got a number of recommendations in the article um, for improving application performance. Um, so, you know, maybe we can just uh, tackle each one uh, as they appear in the article. So the first one is monitoring. We talk a lot about observability and monitoring as an MSP. It's a critical part of what we do. Um, but um, yeah, tell us tell us some of the sort of monitoring best practices, John, that we might recommend for our clients. Well, I mean, you, you've done it in your article in, in less than three complete lines. Stop by setting up CloudWatch to monitor your resources. Other monitoring tools are available. Um, CloudWatch is the obvious one because, you know, it's included. Most things are sending alerts to CloudWatch kind of already, depending on, you know, um, the service and things. In some cases, you have to put agents on boxes. Um, but, you know, things like lambdas and stuff are already sending stuff to CloudWatch. So that's sort of the obvious one. Um, and then you just sort of set alerts up based on those, um, based on your monitors. So that's that's the obvious yeah. one. So that you get, you know, pager duty in the middle of the night. But in theory, you shouldn't do because, um, as you say, it's fairly predictable traffic. No one's really using an edtech platform at three in the morning. At least I hope not. Go go to bed. You've got school in the morning. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's so, the obvious one. Okay. And then we go on to talk about code and resource optimi optimization, which is not really uh, an AWS thing per se, um, but uh, t talk to me a bit about that. Yeah, uh, well, this one's, I would say it's as old as time, but it's certainly as old as programming. Back in back in the days when, uh, are you old enough? Back, back, back in the days when everything was done on punch cards. Hmm. I have a. I did go to Jodrell Bank once, where they had the uh, the radio telescopes, and uh, I remember you were able to press a button and it would spit out a punch card feed. But uh, I can't say I've ever used it in my my working life. <laughs> you had to do. Uh, you had to write your code in such a way that it used minimum number of clock cycles. So this is a problem that's existed since the dawn of computing, since the dawn of programming. Right? You don't want to be going through extra loops. You don't want to be going through extra, uh, extraneous if statements and and conditionals and just writing more code than you need to counterpoint of course with modern computing you can write a little bit more code than is strictly necessary in the name of readability and maintainability but there's there's a happy medium to be found there and, th and then of course with um web applications and things you talk about things like caching which is another item but we talk about minification and and making sure that what you're and compression and making sure that what you're sending down the wire is as small as possible Got it. Um, so it's going to be another uh, controversial pronunciation here, possibly, but uh, <laughs> caching. Um, I had no idea that there are uh, potentially large parts of the world that would actually say caching. Um, if you've ever done any Cloud Guru training, uh, Ryan at Cloud Guru always says caching. I think that's the first place I heard it. Possibly the last place I heard it, but I assume he's not the only person on the planet that calls it caching. No, there's another. I, 
I have. Stefan Marek, who is another AWS trainer. Oh, He's a French yeah. guy who says cache. Which I find very bizarre because cache is actually a French word pronounced cache in the French language. So <laughs> uh, quite quite where he picked up the caching pronunciation, we, I do not know. But uh, yeah, t- tell us a bit about c- caching. well we spoke about it a little bit earlier um with cloudfront so that's one option but cloudfront and cdns in general are kind of only good at static content so that's okay for pictures videos whatever because whilst a video isn't static the content is the files just sort of sitting there being streamed locally so that's pretty good um there's a lot of that that you should be doing you should be looking at not only because of, of improved user performance, but it marginally improves your data egress phase because it's not being egressed quite so much. And then the other side of things as well, there's things like uh, Redis caches, Elastic caches, uh, Dynamo Accelerator if you're using Dynamo, um, such that you're not necessarily reading and writing directly to and from your database. You're talking to a cache, which is much faster than uh, your backend database, and then the cache is, is syncing up with the database every so often. Um, caching, of course, is, is not controversial, but difficult because you've got to worry about whether it's right through, whether it's lazy load. You've got to worry about invalidating and t- time to live and, and all that sort of thing. So there's no kind of one right answer there, but it's certainly something to be looking at. Uh, then we go on to storage. Um, so uh, it's important to be using the right kind of storage uh, for, for various different use cases. And we'll just talk quickly to that. I'm going to marginally disagree with you in your article here. You you say that S3 is the best choice for statically hosted files and UGC, right? Because it's cheap, access from anywhere, but it's not suitable for hosting your live web application code. You can. You absolutely can. Um, I don't know that you want to, but you can. Um, But anything that isn't um, live web code. And technically, if your website is Lambda-based, it's in S3, believe it or not. So I'm going to marginally disagree with you there, because if you're running a serverless website, it's in S3. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I mean, I know you can host static websites from S3. Um, Never heard of hosting um, serverless websites from S3 before. uh, Well, you're not hosting it from S3. (laughs) You're not hosting it from S3 as such. You're hosting it in Lambda, and Lambda backends the code in S3. Right, got it, yeah. So So the Lambda runtimes, yeah, Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. it kind of lambdas the way lambdas work is they just consistently redeploy themselves if you like so it's pulling it from s3 regularly yeah yeah so uh, we're going to talk about uh, we go on to talk about cdn so we've spoken about that already today with cloudfront um so uh, let's not dwell on that database obviously your database is a very critical part of your, your application environment so it's important to get that right um anything you want to say about databases you've, you've got the name of document db wrong <laughs> <laughs> it's Have document I? db yeah <laughs> the full name is document db brackets with mongodb compatibility close bracket oh, of course yeah yeah, yeah 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 i did know that <laughs> um yeah that yeah it depends on what you're storing i'm a big fan of just slamming everything in dynamo be it relational non-relational the exception being graph data because it's quick it's cheap the the service limits are ridiculous you're never going to hit the ceiling on it and if you don't know your usage pattern stick it in pay as you go and forget about it i'm a big fan of using dynamo for anything and everything and of course um it's a direct competitor for document db with mongodb compatibility because it stores things in json as well granted it has its own version but still still json 
Document DB with MongoDB compatibility is almost as much of a mouthful as uh, Python. Uh, what was the uh, the thing from last week's episode? Python packaging the, uh, pipeline. Multi-region Python package pipeline, something or other. Uh, yeah, there's some great tongue twisters in IT, aren't there? This is why we this is why we have TLAs and FLAs. Because yeah. <laughs> I can't hear you, mate. Is, uh, is, is a bit of a bit of a tongue twister. So after the databases, the article goes on to talk about some other uh, key areas, such as ensuring high availability, scalability considerations, securing your student data. Obviously, security always very high on everyone's agenda. Um, and uh, there's a few bonus best practices. These specifically do relate to edtechs in this particular instance, just about some of the programs that are available to provide support in terms of funding and credits, et cetera, uh, from AWS for edtech organizations. Uh, but we've we've run out of time, unfortunately, so uh, we, we don't really have a, an opportunity to delve into any of those in, in, uh, in further detail. But as always, the links will be uh, available to the articles in the show notes. Um, so if you want to go through and read any of the articles we've spoken about today, check out the show notes and, uh, and click on those links. Um, and uh, as I say, that's all we've got time for this week. So uh, thank you very much for listening. Um, uh, don't forget to subscribe, um, like the podcast and uh, share it. Tell your friends. Uh, we'll be back next time for another episode of Logicast. So thank you very much for listening.